there's no sort of false appreciation, I don't think, in an audience that, that you know, sort of herd mentality isn't, oh, well, let's make these people on stage feel better, is it? <laughs> and neither should it be. That's not what we're there for. We all know what we're encountering when we go into this. It gets better because it has to get better. My name is Sophie Hagen. I'm a stand-up comedian and you are listening to the Made of Human podcast. It's a sort of just a nice chatty podcast in which I speak to people to try and find out how to do life. Turns out no one knows. No one has any idea how to do life. So it ends up just being me speaking to people and then I feel less alone with the weirdness. And this week I'm speaking to Hadley Fraser there's a chance you don't know who Hattie Fraser is. I mean, you'll know if you only listen to this because you're a fan of Hattie Fraser's. Usually, I think people who are a fan of Hattie Fraser are not necessarily a fan of my podcast or the other people I have as guests because uh, I usually chat to comedians and stuff. And I, okay, the reason why I'm preempting this is because I feel <laughs> this episode is so incredibly special to me. And I, don't know if I can even properly justify it. I have been a huge fan of Hadley Fraser since I first saw him in Phantom of the Opera, maybe seven or eight years ago. Like a huge, like a huge fan, like a silly fan. I think it was during a time when I had to project a lot of things onto something. And then I saw him sing, and I love voices. Voices has always been the thing in my life. I, my my mom, when I was a child, she would like shout, like, get into the living room, get into the living room now. And I'd run into the living room, and she would be like, listen. And there would be anyone. Like, she would listen to music, and it didn't matter what the genre of music was, the style of music, the lyrics, anything, as long as their voices were incredible. So it would be anything from, like, opera to meatloaf um to uh i'm trying to remember just uh, musical theater just as long as the voices were big and powerful uh like i grew up hating someone like nora jones no, was that her name nora jones the one who was like Come away with me. that one you know what i mean so i hated that i just want and i still do i just want huge voices and hattie fraser i mean i want to say something really there's a there's a song <laughs> you can find it on YouTube uh, called I think it's called Born Born to the Battle or something. Search for Hattie Fraser Born Born to the Battle or something like that. And he holds a, a specific um, tone. I don't know what you call it. Line word song thing for like forty seconds and it's incredible. So I'm his voice is one of my favorite voices and um, so I wanted to chat to him. I know I speak to, you know, political activists and, and, you know, people with, I don't know. <laughs> he, I don't know. I'm being silly about this. And because I feel like I'm introducing you to like a weird childhood dream of mine that is a bit more for me than for you. Well, that's at least what I thought before I spoke to him. And then he turned out to actually be really, really brilliant. And I was so lucky because I was like, I don't know, because he's a musical theater guy. So there was hardly anything about him and his personality on the Internet. So I was like, oh, he could be just really boring or have nothing to say. But he was brilliant. You know, they say don't meet your heroes. Sometimes meet your heroes because they end up being quite great. So I think now I've rambled enough about Hattie. I just wanted to tell you why 
This was huge. I thought I wouldn't be able to get through the interview. Like for me, I was, I was really nervous about this. <laughs> I was really nervous because he was, I don't. He he meant something to me at a certain point of my life, and like I went to London because he was, um, oh, he was Chavert in Les Mis, I think. Yeah, I think that was what it was. So I went to London to see that. And when I was in London to see that, I also saw a bunch of other musicals. I ended up doing gigs at night. And eventually I ended up staying in London to do comedy. So in like a weird, it kept being in my head during the interview. Like at what point am I going to accidentally say, I moved to London because of you? I don't think I said it. I don't remember. I did start saying weird things at one point about wanting to kill. Um, I, I hope you know that I don't mean that <laughs> in the way that it may have sounded. Anyways, I'm going to let you uh, listen to that soon. Quick, 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 because I've already rambled too much. Uh, I'm on tour with my new show, Dead Baby Frog, which will be in the UK and in Denmark, where the shows will be in English. And in March, it'll be at the Soho Theatre. And uh, trigger warning, the show is about emotional abuse. You can go to sofiehagen.com for more information about all of this, and that's S-O-F-I-E-H-A-G-E-N. And you can get tickets, and when you're there, sign up for the newsletter. You can buy my show, my last show, which is called Shimashetta, on sofiehagen.com forward slash shop for just £5. It's a show about being an introvert and not liking people on nightclubs. Uh, So before I let you listen to this episode with Hadley Fraser, holy shit, um, we shall do this week's Acts of Disobedience, where listeners send in a time when they have um, stuck it to the man. Is that what you say? Does anyone say that? Um, Here's an example. This week's listener is called Chloe, and this is what she wrote. Dear Sophie, I'm a copywriter in advertising. Sorry. I don't know why you're apologizing, Chloe. And the company I work for makes a brochure for a high street jeweler every Christmas. Mainstream jewelry marketing is about as gender binary as it can possibly get. This year, as I was proofing a final draft, I saw an opportunity. Some copy on a page about eternity rings said, What better way to show that your love for her is not just for Christmas? Bath, sorry again. And it hit me. I could take for her out and make this page of albeit very femme, rings, look rightly like it's for all people who love people. Like I say, this was late in the process and I wasn't sure the tweak would make it through. But the change was approved. It felt like a tiny victory and another step in the path to using my advertising powers for good. We had to get all this stuff ready in early autumn, so it happened a while ago. But it wasn't until after I saw your show in Coventry, you were so freaking great, thank you Chloe, that I convinced myself that it would be worth sharing. I hope I was right. This industry is one of the worst in all the ways, but I hope that with enough tiny acts, we can all make it better. Aww. Thank you, Chloe. That is freaking awesome. I'm really, I'm like touched. I'm a bit touched. Thank you, Chloe. You can submit your own act of disobedience where you have stuck it to the man, if that's a thing, on madeofhumanpockets.com, where you can also buy a Mopa t-shirt. Uh, we just got some new designs and I think you'll like them. Then I just want to quickly say I've rambled for too long and you're all here to hear Hadley Fraser. Um... <laughs> Oh, God, I can't believe I interviewed Hadley Fraser. Oh, my God. He was so nice as well. He was so nice. Um, And go see Young Frankenstein, because he's in it. (laughs) And so is Russ Noble, who's also been a guest. Anyways, uh, I want to thank the people who are donating regularly to this podcast via Patreon. It means the world. Also, the people who send one-off donations, which you can also do on mopad.com. It just means a lot, and... Every single time I get an email saying someone's become a patron, someone's donated, I know, I, and I can't answer every single one of you. I do answer quite a few, but 
I'm, it warms my heart and I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky. You have no idea how lucky I feel. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, if you give more than $5 per episode on Patreon, I give you a shout out at the end of the episode. So you'll listen to that after this episode. Um, please enjoy like the actual sound of my teeny tiny 21 year old, uh, just having moved to London, not knowing how to do life version of me's dream come true <laughs> i'm sorry hadley i hope you're not listening to this please don't please i hope sorry i'm normal don't think i'm weird don't regret this uh please enjoy this episode with the oh my god amazing hadley fraser hey made of human podcast listener that lives in ireland and will be around dublin january 13th yeah i'm talking to you I'm Alison Svittle. Uh, I'm a former podcast guest on Made of Human. The episode is called I Licked a Poster of Aaron Carter. Me and Sophie Hagen are going to be doing a gig in Vicker Street, January 13th. You can buy tickets at Ticketmaster. It's a perfect Christmas present if you want to confuse someone if they don't know me. But um, yeah, I'm just, it's, it's a gig advert. Please come to my gig. That's all I can say to convince you. I'm I'm not going to beg you. Okay? I'm not going to beg. Bye! For people who might not know who you are, can you just give us a short intro? I think that will probably be the vast majority of people. My name is uh, Hadley Fraser. I'm an actor um, and musician. That's pretty much all you need to know, I suppose. Yeah. That's, That's how I describe myself. Yeah, anyway. we, we were, like when you walked in, I was asking you about your being humble. Yeah. And that's kind of, is that a humble description of you, considering what you've uh, starred in for I a... would have suppose so, yeah, I, I guess, yeah. Look, I, it's not self-consciously humble, uh, but I'm one of those people who I suppose has turned his hand to quite a number of things. So I think actor-musician tends to kind of be a bit of a catch-all umbrella. So that's, yeah, that's what I would suggest. So where are you at in your life right now? I saw you yesterday in Young Frankenstein, yes. which was brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah, just down the road from where we're recording this at the Garrick Theatre. But quick plug. Um, we opened not so long ago and it seems to have gone down quite well. And we're having a ball and we've extended the show as well. So we're booking through till next September, I think, which is great. You know, um, our lives as actors, I suppose our lives as self-employed people in the entertainment in the arts industries they are unpredictable aren't they so a certain amount of predictability is quite often a welcome thing so to know that i'm going to be there hopefully well into the new year is is a nice thing and if anybody wants to come and join us please feel free please oh it's really it's really funny as well yeah thanks. that's that's one of the thoughts i had when i was watching it because anything else i've seen you in has been Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera. Uh-huh. I've listened to Pirate Queen. Sure. Against... Short-lived Pirate <laughs> yeah. Queen that I think about three people saw on Broadway in about... Nine, no, 2007. Oh, I have so many questions about Pirate Queen. Okay. Which, um, again, I might be one of the only people <laughs> with that reference. <laughs> you may be. But uh, you mostly... Have you, am I right to assume you've mostly done serious parts? I would probably say yes. I mean, yeah. I've done a bit of comedy here and there. We were talking very briefly about the the comedy I did in the same theatre at the Garrick a couple of years ago, Harlequinade, and I suppose a few lighter-hearted musicals as well. I did a thing called The Pajama Game not so long ago, which is very light-hearted, and 
Um, I did Pirates of Penzance very early on in my career, which was, you know, a lovely Gilbert and Sullivan stupidity. Um, I've done a bit of comedy on television as well. This year I did a BBC series called Decline and Fall, which is adaptation of an Evening War novel. I wasn't in it for very long, but, you know, that was that was pretty pretty sort of comedy-based as well. And, and I guess I've had a something of a relationship with Matt Lucas as well, so... I've worked on a couple of his bits and bobs as well. So the vast majority of stuff, I suppose, has been relatively sincere. And certainly for the last couple of years, you know, I've done Eugene O'Neill and George Bernard Shaw plays, and they're not known for their laugh-a-minute <laughs> scripts. Uh, so it's quite nice to do something that doesn't take itself too seriously. So that's what I was wondering, is when you do, like, a funny thing on the stage compared to doing a serious thing, because you seem so comfortable with it, and you seem to have this like just natural funny bones and but also when you do comedy you can hear the audience react immediately yeah how does that differ from doing something serious yeah there is, there is a remarkable difference i suppose um speaking specifically with young frankenstein we did a we did a little uh, out of town tryout as they call it in in newcastle so we did about two weeks of performances up there and that really helped us in terms of honing the show and knowing when the laughs were going to come knowing which Uh, lines to sort of move through and earn a laugh something as a comedian you'll know mm. it, it really is a push and pull situation isn't it you you sacrifice a laugh after perhaps one line in order to gain a bigger one later on down the line and that's certainly something that I think I worked on with Ross Noble who I know you've had on the show mm. before we were very very keen and quite analytical about to a certain extent and we're still trying stuff you know it's always work in progress isn't it But certainly working with someone like Mel Brooks, you understand that comedy, as much as it is divine inspiration and and uh, creativity, there is a science to it as well. There is a math to it. There is a rhythm to it. You know, Mel is a very rhythmic person. He's a fantastic drummer. And I think he hears his comedy very, very ryth rhythmically. Sometimes I feel that Mel's punchlines could actually be just nonsense language. But as long as you get the rhythm right, yada da 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 Then, then you'll win. Um, whereas with, I suppose, a, a, a more serious play, a more sincere piece of work, you don't get that that feedback from the audience. So I suppose you're flying blind slightly. Um, you you're relying, I suppose, on on an ongoing emotional connection that that has slightly grander movements, perhaps slightly bigger uh, waves of of. Um, of audience in, uh, engagement. Um, with all of these things, though, it's just trial and error and blind luck when it works and bad luck when it doesn't. <laughs> how do you? How can you tell if a, like a serious musical goes well? Do you get that at the very, very end? Like, can you sense so. it on the... Um, perhaps at the end of a, of a, of a song or a, or a beat of drama or something like that, you can tell if people are really engaged... It's funny with something like Les Mis, you, you, I suppose people know what it is now, so they know what to expect and they know what they're going to see and more often than not perhaps they would know the music already up front or may have seen the film or may have seen it before. Um, so that um, pre-connection with a piece, I suppose, helps if you're doing a serious piece. Um, but yeah, I guess you don't get as many signifiers so that can be quite unsettling um and i've done a couple 
Pirate Queen being one of them of brand new, serious, sincere, you know, emotional, uh, wearing their heart on on their sleeve musicals, and you know it when it's, you know, when it's not going down well, because people will be nonplussed and they'll let you know. They don't have to, you know. There's no, there's no sort of false appreciation. I don't think in an audience that, that you know sort of herd mentality isn't oh well, let's make these people on stage feel better is it <laughs> and neither should it be that's not what we're there for we all know what we're encountering when we go into this so do you think that feels i mean i only know you know stand-up comedy does that do you think it feels the same way as when you know for us we call it dying on stage you know and just no one laughs at anything yeah is it the same feeling where but you still have to just have to keep going you still don't have to you? keep going yeah I mean, what's it like for you? When have you done gigs where you feel like you just want to walk off stage? Have you done? Uh, yeah, I've I've never walked off stage. I've been dragged off stage. Have you? I don't think that counts. That's <laughs> old fashioned sheep hook. Just a bit of a yeah. Someone put uh, the MC came up, put his arm around me, and said, uh, "Oh, everyone, give it up for something!" Wow. And you pulled the microphone out of my hand and whispered, "Run!" Uh, so my that word. happened, uh, but. Yeah, you do if you're like 10 minutes into a show and nothing and it's just like you get nothing and you just go. And what do you do in that situation? Do you think, okay, I'm going to keep going with the same material. I'm going to slow it down or quicken it up or, well, that or, depends. or shorten it or what do well, you do? Well, that depends if it's a, well, sometimes you're not allowed to shorten it, are you? Because you just have to, you have to you fit know, a you've time been booked for a certain time. Right. If it's a club gig, I'll try and do different material. But if it's a full show... I can't jump out of it. It's a full story. How do you... So you know that you have to... But I guess that's to. like us. You, we know that we have to mm. keep on going to the end. Yeah, you just have to. And Even then there's something about trying to change the rhythm or trying to up your energy or talking slower, or talking faster or looking at them more or maybe stopping and addressing it, in some, which you should never do, but to go, hey... What's going on Can here? you hear me? <laughs> Is this on? Yeah, that, that, you run a real risk there, don't you, of, of highlighting what mm. what's going on and probably making it worse, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I, did, I read that yeah. Chris Rock really slows down. If he's not having a mm. good night, he slows everything down and sort of teases it out a little yeah. bit. Maybe that's a... Well, as Steve Martin said, if it goes well, slow down. If it goes badly, slow down. Really? Yeah. But I found that that doesn't always work. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not a win. That's all right if you're Steve Martin, I <laughs> exactly, guess. Yeah. yeah, that's a good lesson for life, though. I would imagine. Just slow down. Just slow. Just in general. <laughs> just, just slow, slow down. down. Yeah. <laughs> How have you? So, is there anything when you're on stage in a in a musical? Do you ever have? Is there something you would love for the audience to know in terms of? I don't know. I don't know if you if you can um, follow me, but I, I often have this thing with wherever I am. Mm. I always feel like asking whoever works there how to be a good enough uh, consumer. You know, if I'm on a plane, I wish I could speak to air stewardesses and ask them, is, is, do, do we always do something really annoying that always annoys you? you know, and I kind of feel the same way when I'm an audience in, in an audience for a musical. I go, is there a thing that we shouldn't be doing or that we... That's incredibly sort of forward-thinking of you. That's in, and, and, and big-hearted. Um, <laughs> I suppose I have a similar thing, actually. You know, that desire to please—is that what it is? Yeah, it's just not to be annoying, maybe. Not be an a-hole. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I don't think there's. I mean, there's the obvious things like switching your phone off. And Ross and I were Ross. This is Ross Noble, uh, who was um, who's in Young Frankenstein with me. We were talking the other day. I think it was a matinee last week. 
And the thing about a show like Young Frankenstein is you have to be 100% on or you can't do it at all. There's no coasting, you know, it's such a physical show, it's such a full-on thing. And we're really, you know, going for it and it's quite tiring. I mean, it's not being a brain surgeon or anything like that, you know, I I don't mean to suggest that, but, you know, it is physically relatively tiring. But um, Ross threw himself across the stage at one moment in the show, looked up and the lady was just sort of reading the programme and he thought, (laughs) I'm... I'm I'm throwing myself across the stage here and, and you can't wait until the end of the show to read the programme. And I was doing, in the very same show, the very opening number, which is a very sort of dense, wordy, comedic patter song. Um, and I looked down and a chap in the front row was texting. And I thought, what? I thought, why can't, why come? Unless, unless you're getting a text saying your kidney is ready for the transplant come now surely that's go, a phone call though well yeah and if it is should you be coming to young frankenstein yeah. <laughs> unless you want to know how transplants maybe don't go all that well um then i think there is a there's just a sort of cultural consciousness of how to behave as an audience isn't there yeah just as there probably should be about being human i i don't know just be nice just be, be nice. cheerful and nice I was thinking about the tiredness thing, like what, because if I'm really exhausted, I just kind of have to stand on the stage for an hour and talk. You know, it's not, there's not that much physicality to it. Mm. If you are tired, I was thinking about how physically demanding that show, that Young Frankenstein seems to be. What do you, do you just power through? Yeah, you have to. I mean, I have a little baby who's nearly one. So sleep, um, up until a couple of months ago, was a relatively uh, distant concept. Um, and so, you know, and I believe me, I don't have a monopoly on being a parent or a monopoly on tiredness, but, you know, I would find myself with three or four hours sleep and, right, I've got two shows today or a, a 12-hour technical rehearsal and you just... Again, look, I don't mean to sound... I hate these actors who make it sound as if what they're doing is is so terribly cruel. It's not like we're, you know in a very serious situation life and death situation it's not and and I guess that's something that I try and remind myself it's not life and death here is it I can go on and arse around on stage for two and a half hours and 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 it's not going to make a difference too much to my overall levels of tiredness I'll still be able to go home and sleep and eat and you know, I, I think a bit, a bit of perspective is probably good to tell yourself just go and do it I don't know how do you feel no, I I I agree because we can, but I, it's all relative. We can't really, you know, because everyone everything can always be concept, compared to something. Yeah, of that's, but I'm I'm just I think I'm, what what I so I can sort of in a way relate to that. Yeah, know, having to be on stage because it's but it's also psychologically tiring, isn't it? Because you're on. Must be doubly so for you if you're on your own for that amount of time. Because obviously in a cast, you you're not always the focus of attention. Mm, that's interesting because I was thinking the exact opposite. <laughs> because at least I'm just me. I mean, it's very hard for me to really fuck up because people are expecting me to be myself and talk about me. So even if I mess up, well, I don't really have lines, but if I tell a story a bit wrong, it doesn't really matter where you have to hit a certain beat, you have to hit a certain line, you have to... True, yeah. Because there's a cast behind you that's very reliant on you saying the right thing at the right time. Yeah, uh, I guess, I suppose, part of the process of growing up as an actor is realising that 
it is important to do all of those things, but it's not... It's not staggeringly so. If you don't say a line quite right, everybody survives. I'd say there's probably... uh, Last night, you know, we had one of the guys on stage who completely mangled a line. And actually what it did was energise everybody. I'm sure the stage management or whoever is having to call a lighting cue straight afterwards was probably having kittens. But on stage, actually, what it ended up doing was just sort of energising people. Everybody had a wicked time at this poor guy's expense. But... um, I really I've, want to ask what the line is, but I'm not even sure that would make it, any sense. I think it's one of those things that probably wouldn't translate. Yeah. It was just, uh, just, just a, a sort of non sequitur line, really, that he just kind of mangled, and you could tell that he wasn't going to remember what it was, so he made up something completely different. Oh, nice. And everybody on stage found it delightful. The audience certainly weren't... I don't, don't feel like they felt like they were outside of whatever was going on. That's, I think, when on stage gags get, get a bit naff when the audience feels that there's some shenanigans going on on stage, but they're not party to it. It was just one of those moments where I just thought, actually, that's had a really sort of corralling effect, a really motivating effect for the rest of the show, and it did. And actually, you know, there's a beauty in that imperfection, isn't there? And I think that's what I've learned as an actor. I was probably very... um, very uh, by the book when I first started a bit structured a bit too too um i don't know a bit too obsessive about everything being right Mm. and i'm not sure i feel like that anymore has it ever gone like really wrong like really oh sure yeah i mean we had to stop the show a few times in newcastle but the great thing about a show like Young Frankenstein and having someone like Ross in the show is that the director, Susan Stroman, said to Ross and I, look, if we do have a show stop, you know, if there's a big technical problem with the show, you guys just go out the front and ad-lib for a bit. Nice. And so that's what we did. And actually, I think the audience probably loved those bits because they feel like they're, again, seeing something different or they're able to go home and say, yeah, we saw the show and it went wrong. But then guess what happened? Um, and that's the same with a lot of shows, actually. You know, we even on things like Les Mis, one night I got... When I was playing Marius, I got stuck at the top of the gates. So, you know, when I... Um, you know the show yeah, well, yeah. do you? So he goes to see Cosette for the first time, is it? I can't remember. what well, it's in the first half, and he has to climb over the gates of their house to get into the garden yeah. to sing Heart Full of Love. Anyway, so I tried to climb over the gates, but I got stuck. My trousers got stuck on the top of the gates and I had to sing Heart Full of Love (laughs) from the top of the... I don't know, they must be like 10 feet high, 12 feet high gates. Um, And, you know, you just kind of keep going. And I think I got wheeled off and got helped down. (laughs) And... um, I don't, I th- it's, I'm sure some of the audience were none the wiser. They probably just thought it was a strange directorial decision. Some people who knew the show probably laughed along with it. And, I don't, you know, I still sang the song. <laughs> I don't know, have you ever had something go really wrong on a gig? Like, I mean, as I said, I was pulled off stage. You were pulled off stage, <laughs> I feel yeah. like that's my go-to. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> that is, that's, that's quite... Well, How did same. you come back from that? Because is something like that, does that knock your confidence? What happens? Yeah, I went straight home and ordered uh, plane tickets back to Denmark for the next day. And I stayed back in Denmark for two weeks. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you mean, felt it like has you wanted to. to retreat and oh, I wanted go to, to a safe place? Oh, God, I needed to just not ever be near... I didn't want to think about... Some, I mean, it, and that is also the absolute worst 
absolute worst yeah. example, right? Like it, that doesn't happen every other week. Sure, of course. Um, but yeah, you've it's also because you're yourself on stage. You know, you're just so bare, and you're telling all your thoughts and feelings and weirdnesses, and then they hate you. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, guys, this is me, and I'm showing yeah. you all of this. There's a vulnerability there, isn't there? Oh, that perhaps yeah. we don't have. You know, we have a suit of armor, a character, I suppose. Um, that you can hide behind, whereas you're laying yourself mm. bare. It's I, all of it. I guess. Do you? Are there parts of you that you would never share? Are there parts of you that you would never put into a show in order mm. to keep something back? No, but that's probably also not the right choice. <laughs> I think, because I, I mean, the, the show I'm doing at the moment is about my emotionally abusive grandfather, which is probably the most dark part of my life. Right. And which I did think in the beginning, I was like, uh, I don't know if, if this is really good. But then I started seeing a psychologist and tried to work with it alongside her. And, and how did now it work I'm fine. out? It's worked yeah. really well because I'm retelling my own story. You know, I'm taking like a sad part of my life and making it my story. You know, I become the yeah. narrator of my own life, which I wasn't when I was a child. Of course. So it's actually quite... That was therapeutic. I imagine... That that's really the. You're one of the few people who can do that if you catch my drift because you've had a direct experience of it. You're able to tackle it in whatever way you like so it doesn't feel objectified, it doesn't feel flimsy. If another comic who hadn't gone through that was mm. perhaps to tackle that subject, it might feel tangential or it might mm. feel exploitative somehow yeah i feel like that's with most topics I, I couldn't talk about something i'm not that i don't have any kind of experience with it would just feel wrong you know for me yeah. to talk about whatever what it's like being a person of color or something like that like that would yeah. just be it's not my topic like i'm not gonna you know i don't i haven't had that lived experience so for me to talk about something which so many people have experienced so when of i talk course, about my of course, when yeah. i talk about my grandfather i have so many people afterwards coming up to me saying it was like you were talking about my uncle or my dad or my whatever. Right. And that is quite, that's also part of the, uh, I don't want to use the word empowering because that's such a blur word, but that, oh, that helps it. Yeah. Feeling to, to, to feel like your art, your craft has that ability, does it? To empower you, to empower other people. Yeah. Rather than just be entertaining, you know, there's a informative, there's an, uh, there's an informative thing about it. There's an empowering thing about it. Um, is was that something that you were sort of trepidatious about to begin with? You know, probably not as much as I should have been. Right, I was very like, "Hey guys, <laughs> <laughs> listen!" <laughs> oh, he was such an asshole. Right, uh, I probably I, I'm not really I don't really uh, walk on like eggshells about certain stuff. So I just kind of open up immediately, and then I start pulling back when I realize, "Oh, that was too much. Or that I wasn't ready for that." Or yeah, but it's still, I think, because it's me. Because so, what I'm what I'm really curious about is how it affects how it affects someone to and this is such a cheap way of discussing acting but to have to pretend to be someone else every single night for hours hmm. does that ever because now you, you're playing kind of a funny character mm -hmm. compared to when you're playing a serious character or a romantic character I don't know these are very for sure yeah how does does that do you go off stage and feel different? Or is that something you learn from like day one at acting school? You just, this is how you become yourself afterwards. I think that's very dependent on person to person, on actor to actor. I confess I'm not someone who takes it home with them. 
I think I've always, even, even as a kid, been quite good at compartmentalising. Um, I'm sure subconsciously there's there have been times when I've taken stuff home, but um, I'm not one of those actors. And there are some, and it's and it's perfectly understandable who do take the the angst or something into their lives. I would resist it uh, being an inevitability, I suppose. Certainly something like this, because it is relatively simplistic in its in its goal, which is to entertain. Um, I don't feel like we're clinging on to much as actors. It's very easy to sort of... I, th- I guess the suit of armour or the eggshell that surrounds us in, in this is very thin. It's very easy to tap out of it every night and go home. Um, I suppose I've... I've been through harder periods in my life, personally, when actually going in to do a show of, of whatever type has actually been a saving grace. How so? Because it gives you, if you are an actor, I suppose, and certainly a sort of theatre animal, as I suppose I would count myself, it gives you a a regularity, it gives you a focus, it gives you a community, it gives you a connection, and it gives you a purpose. Um, And so actually I found it quite um, a saviour, I suppose, sometimes. Um... And I'm happy to say that that's, you know, a number of years ago. And uh, these days I'm, you know, personally very, very happy. And uh, so I'm good at sort of going, right, that's work, that's home. Um, But certainly when those things haven't been in balance, I've often looked to work to, to create some sort of structure. I don't know if that rings true to you. No, I think it makes sense. So... Have have there been parts where, like the character, it's either been too close to you, or it's been, you know, like the the um, right time, the right place, kind of. I'm not sure I'd go that far. Certainly, I don't feel musical theatre necessarily ever runs that risk because seldom do we break into song in real life. I think it's easy to distance yourself from that. I don't feel I've ever played a screen role in which I've had to inhabit something sort of 24-7 and perhaps that is a situation where I would understand that actors the the lines between those between reality and, and your craft blurs a great deal more the closest I've come I suppose would be some of the, the straight drama that I've done but I've never felt like it's come close to sort of occupying or or, or, or taking possession of me Last year I played a, 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 a drunk, a sort of unfulfilled drunk living under his father's shadow. And I suppose if, I, if anything was going to take me down that path, it would have been a part like that. But I think I was conscious of going, OK, actually, that's, that's work. And it was right around the time that we found out we were pregnant as well, so... I suppose I had a very, very clear delineation at that moment of life and work. Uh, I don't mean to sort of 
crow about that but uh, yeah I'm not one of those people who tortures themselves with their with their characters I, um, I'm just I'm not built that way for some reason so that character was that because it was sort of similar to something you've experienced or? Um, no no um, I think it would have been an easy conduit to to have uh, if there had been any sort of uh, barnacles of my personality that would have latched onto the hull of a boat you know the hull of a particularly dark boat it would have been that but it just kind of sailed on by and uh yeah i mean we've i've never uh had any problems i don't, I don't think with drink or anything like that but you know we all know people who have had that sort of thing but i i, I think it's an too easy a thing to go well I've known people or I have friends who struggled with alcohol and therefore this affects me I think that's f unless it really does in which case deal with it and or take steps to deal with it and talk about it but I think it's, it would have been too easy for me to have gone this is really affecting me it would have been false it, 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 it didn't you know um, does that sound trite it's not meant this to it's great it's great yeah. You're not, you, you don't sound like an asshole at all. Okay, good. <laughs> really don't, don't worry about it. So would you say you had, just if we go all the way back, a happy childhood? Yeah. Yeah, content and... It, yeah, incredibly. My my folks were a little bit older. Um, my dad was 50 when he had me, so he retired when I was 10. So I was very fortunate that he was around and about and... If I was going to a rugby match or to a singing lesson, more often than not, it would be Dad who took me. And Mum was a primary school teacher and is an incredibly nurturing person still. And so I had, I guess, a very um, settled and uh, happy childhood. You know, it wasn't um, it wasn't affluent particularly. I mean, it wasn't uncomfortable, but. Uh, I think back on it now and, w and wish and hope that my daughter has something as settled and comfortable as I did. I doubt she will, just because of the nature of my job, you know. I, I'm hoping that I can give her the same, if not more, amount of love that my parents gave me, but, you know, I think she'll probably um, have to encounter a certain degree of unpredictability with her parents' lives that I didn't have you know there was a predictability about where we were and 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 a sort of fulsome amount of care and attention really so I count myself incredibly fortunate you know because I know that's very seldom the case or very not very but you know seldom so what when you reached like school age were you one of the cool kids uh no I doubt it um I was One of the kids who tried to do everything, um, I probably thought I was quite cool. I wasn't. I was probably a bit of a prick. Yeah? If I'm honest with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was head boy at my secondary school because I think I just had confidence. And thinking back on it now, it was probably misplaced probably too much and I'd like to go back and probably tell myself to calm down a little bit 
But by the same token, um, I certainly wasn't one of the cool kids. No, you know, I I didn't smoke. I didn't. I probably. I don't know. It was quite a sheltered. I lived in a little village. You know. I don't think I encountered drugs until I got to university. You know, and so it like it was a very. It was like John Betjeman had come up with a childhood. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm very fortunate. But yeah, no, I wasn't a cool kid. I was doing plays and musicals. I mean, I did sport as well and all of that and was in choirs. And I guess, no, I'd like to think that I was cool, but I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when you encountered drugs? Did you feel that, like, oh, my God, this is, this is yeah. like on TV? Yeah, yeah. Because my parents, had, I was terrified of them. They drummed it into me, you know, that they were the, the evil. And I've never really taken drugs. So um, it's not one of those things that I sort of was ever a dark crystal that I felt I needed to, to be a part of. But yeah, when I encountered them at university, you know, I just thought, oh my, it was almost scandalous. Yeah. And then yeah. I suppose I thought to myself, well, hang on a minute. What, why that's just a preconception that I've got because I'm now getting to know these people and they're all really nice people and they smoke weed so that's okay um, so I think that slightly middle class fright that I had about drugs was quickly expunged and um, now I think as long as you're not damaging anybody else or yourself too much Do what you want to do. I don't know. How do you do? Did you? No, because I just I think I recognize that seeing drugs very very late. Yeah. Being like, oh my god, this is a thing that people do in real life. Yeah. This is I've only seen this in the very in the movies, in the scary movies. Yeah. How did you? Did you? Was that not part of your childhood then? No. Didn't encounter it at all. No, I was because I was the the kid being like, oh, what you're going to go drinking? We don't need alcohol to have fun. We have books. <laughs> So I was the furthest really? room. So they'd be like, yeah, so we stay at home. And I'd be like, yeah, good, because I don't want to be near that alcohol thing, because that sounds scary and unnecessary. Like, my mom asked me to go out and just have a beer with my friends. Really? And I was like, no. Wow. I don't you need resisted al- even that? I did, but it didn't feel like resisting. I just thought they were they were being ridiculous. That they needed something. That shows a real strength of mind from an early age, though, I would contend. It shows a person who is completely okay with their own company. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that's the strength of mind as well, I think. It's some, yeah, some, at some point. And then I tried it and I was like, oh, this is, this is quite fun. fun, isn't it? See, alcohol, I would... Yeah, no, I did encounter alcohol quite early on, I suppose. I, that was the... That's the drug of choice, isn't it? As a Western society, it's the... It's the drug that it's okay to to abuse. The poison. To, it's actually poison. And now, now I know yeah. I sound like me as a 15-year-old, but... <laughs> You've regressed. <laughs> yeah. Regressed. Actually, you know what? <laughs> Here's what it does to your Here's liver. Here's what it does to your liver. It's not fun. <laughs> so I have a question that I always ask on this. Um, and it's quite weird asking you because in some very odd way, you're k- kind of in a way in the background of this question. Because it, it's based on me having watched uh, Les Mis and having this picture of this um, revolution happening mm. and people getting ready to go and fight. So the question I always ask on this podcast is if that was 
real life. If this was something that happened now and there was a revolution and there was like a horrible, whatever, right-wing dictator or something similar, mm. uh, which isn't too far from... Let's face yeah. it, it's, it's not too... Yeah. In the bounds of <laughs> but in my head, I've always... In my head, it's limitless. Like, in my head, that's the image I have. Okay. So the question basically is, if that was the case, would you... And it's fun because you've played so many different roles within mm. that that very scenario in your in your work life. In real life, would you be joining the bad side? Would you be neutral? Or would you join the revolution and fight? Goodness me. That's a very, very difficult question. I suppose one would always like to think you'd join the revolution. Would I? I suppose looking at the evidence of my life, I'm, I've, not, I'm, I've never been a particularly politically active person. So what would it take to, to spur that within me? I'm not sure. Would I be neutral? Potentially, because I tend to shy away from confrontation. That's not something that I'm very good at in real life. My wife very often has to play hardball with, you know, garages and workmen, and I'm awful at it. Would I join the bad side? I hope not. Is that the coming of the revolution? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think <laughs> that exact. was the first arrow fired. They just knew you weren't on board. They were like, yeah, this is it. This is it. He's down there. Yeah. But I suppose you've only to look at history and see that good people do nothing and that's effectively joining... I mean, that's an app, but truism, isn't it? And a trite thing to say, but good people do nothing and, and join the bad side as a consequence. I don't know. It's Would it help if I said that there's a really good infrastructure in the revolution? You know? <laughs> so you wouldn't necessarily have to be, you know, with the guns on the barricade. Like, you could be... You could be there's, in like, the office jobs within the revolution. I'd love to be in the office. Yeah? Yeah, I suppose, yeah, I'm probably something of a coward. Um, my brother's in the army, and, and it amazes me the extent to which his day-to-day -day job must take such bravery. And yet he doesn't really bring it home with him at all. There's no sense of, well, I done two tours of Afghanistan or whatever and this is what I saw and this is what I encountered and, um, so I think I'd probably like someone like him actually leading the revolution because it would be very organised as well actually mm. uh, be, you know it'd be meal times would be regular um, <laughs> would I join I don't know if I'd have many sort of transferable skills really so um, I don't suppose I'd be at the forefront of it. Um, but, yeah, something in a sort of support or logistics role, maybe. We could definitely find you something. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll sign up. Good. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I wasn't trying to lead you in any direction. No, no, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? How, have you asked that question of yourself, of people throwing it back at you? As a few times, but and I think I changed my answer. Each, I, I think of new ways every time. and I've both been like the spy. I quite like the spy. Oh, OK. You know, the spy who's like, you know... Gets on in the with other the, side. Yeah, yeah, but then I bring back information or I try to kill like, the main guy. That's a precarious existence. Yeah, it's, it's a... I mean, this is also me expecting the most of myself, like what I'm capable of. But, <laughs> but I've good. also just been the leader of a small fraction, you know. I wouldn't necessarily be the main leader, but I okay. could have like my own little... You have your own sort of yeah. select band. Yeah. Yeah. And be the person to do the hard stuff as well, the things that no one else wants to do. Okay, right. 
Um, is that particularly, have you got sort of hard stuff that you particularly envisage in the revolution that you, you've done? I mean, all I'm, all I'm going to say is if, if someone needs to be killed. I mean, I'm just saying. Really? I'm just like, if, okay, it's, if, it's, if, like, if this is like life or death. Yeah, because you know how people are like, oh, you wouldn't kill one person to save ten people. You'd do it? Yeah. Without thinking about it? Oh, no, I'd think about it. Okay. But I would reach the conclusion. <laughs> how long would it take? Because it might be time dependent. You know, what if the revolution's... <laughs> failed and you're still wondering whether to kill that one person oh i thought you went the other way around like oh. make sure you check if it's a hypothetical situation <laughs> would you kill this yes oh no i was just asking no oh shit oh now like, he's dead oh, oh god no he was a good one <laughs> but i did after i saw lamus the first time i became obsessed with the idea and i walked around asking all my friends that question just what what would you do and I, in my head i had this idea of i wouldn't be friends with anyone who said neutral or join the bad guy like yeah. I only want to, which is, I think, it's a bit, um, it's a bit young when I had those thoughts. But. but the interesting thing about it is, I guess, is that in Les Mis, they're all students, aren't they? So mm. there is that vitality of youth, I think, that um, is so powerfully intoxicating and relatable, I think, as an audience. And especially if you're young, you see these young people with uh, passion and intellect, and it's very easy to go, I'd be one of those guys. And then life grinds you down. And you think, actually, maybe I'd just be the guy in the cafe who just kind of welcomes everybody. Sure, come in, bad man, have a coffee, but uh, yeah, I'm fine. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I'd, yeah. I, I think there's a, there's, there's certainly a youthful quality to that revolution that is quite intoxicating. Um, but maybe I, I, that, maybe that, idea is going to be tested soon I don't know if it's going to be just youthful participants perhaps that are the front and centre of resistance or whatever that might be politically or otherwise may, may, may not want to go down that road <laughs> Have you thought about uh, how or why your brother ended up in the army compared to what you're doing because like, you, it seems, sounds like you think of that as a, like a very brave or courageous thing mm. Like I definitely compare a lot of things with my uh, stepbrother and my sister. Like what, what do they I do? do, and uh, well, my sister's still young, so she doesn't really do anything. But my brother is like IT person living in Dubai, and I, I think that's an interesting thing of going. Well, was it those years apart, or was did they have a different? Because you must have had sort of a similar childhood. We sure did, yeah. Is it just a personality thing? Uh, I would imagine so. Yeah, um, my dad was in the army before we were born. Uh, mind you, that was national service, though. You know, he right. had no choice but to sign up. Right. But I suppose always lived his life in a relatively uh, influenced by the military, as his generation did. He's eighty-seven mm. now. Wow. So his generation, I suppose, just that was something that they lived with. You know, they shined their boots because they'd been told to every morning for the first sort of four or five years of their adult life. Shiny boots, shiny mind. Something that my dad used to say to me before school. And it obviously infiltrated my brother's head slightly more than it did mine. <laughs> um, but I suppose it, it's relatively e easy to see. My, my brother and I both did so many extracurricular activities. We were lucky, so lucky as kids that we had that pretty much for free, I would imagine, all of that stuff, or a very minimal amount of money. You know, we were both part of the Scouts, which I think pretty much led to my brother going down that route um, but we both were very musical um, you know my brother had a beautiful voice 
still does, especially as a boy soprano, far superior to mine. Um, and so there could have been a route of him going into music or something like that. But I guess he kind of went down the, to quote Eddie, Eddie, Eddie Izzard, running, jumping, climbing trees, and I went down the putting on makeup while you're up there route. So we're very similar in a number of ways, and I suppose different in some crucial ways. But I, I don't, I don't think there's a too much of a surprise why we are in those very, very different occupations. To a certain extent, I think we both like being told what to do. And then it gets to a point where we both go, actually, I quite like to have a go at that now, to tell someone else what to do. Um, but we're quite good at following orders, the pair of us. And so uh, he does that, you know, obviously very evidently. And being an actor, I think you're very often following the lead of a director or a writer or someone like that. And you're collaborating and you're putting your own ideas forward, but to a certain extent you're fulfilling the idea of of a writer or a director. Would you... Do you feel like you've reached all your goals? Do you have more things you want to accomplish? Like how... This is kind of like just like a big ramble of questions in one, which is... I think the topic is just success. Like how do you define success? Do you feel like you've reached it? Like how do you feel about um, your... I think I have a, a a mistrust of of resting resting too much now, um, and I don't think I uh, don't think generally that I'm following um, a desire to be successful. I think I'm following a desire to be busy. Um, So have I reached all of those goals? No, because I know that I've still lots more that I want to busy myself with. You know, I wrote my first piece of theatre that was produced at the beginning of the year. I'd love to write more. There are a few parts that I'd like to play, but by and large, the parts that I've enjoyed playing the most are the ones that have come round without me lusting after them. Um... So, do I feel that there are goals left? Yes, but they're very sort of hazy and not particularly well-defined goals. I like working. I like working with good people. And that, I think, in itself is probably how I would count myself as successful professionally. And personally, um, I just like to be a good father. And a good husband, I suppose. Uh, but it's very crystallised in my mind at the moment, I suppose, as my little girl comes up to being one, that she's so impressionable at the moment and soaks everything up that my wife and I are crucial to her to development as a as a human. And you feel such responsibility in turning them into a nice one. I, I feel, anyway. So if my little girl, Elvie, ends up being a nice girl, I think I'll have counted that as the biggest success. That sounds trite. No, that sounds like a very nice thing. But I, are you nervous about that not happening? No, I just... Um, 
I'm nervous about being able to provide, I suppose, which is a, is that, is that hackneyed? Maybe, but I'm nervous about providing and financially and emotionally. Why emotionally? It's so important, isn't it? It's so important. Will you seem in touch with your emotions? For sure, yeah. Um, well, that's not for me to say, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm terribly messed up underneath. No, I, I feel I probably am. I'm probably emotionally slightly... Um, vague. I'm probably quite vague, just full stop, actually, just in terms of... I'm quite good at just sitting and doing nothing and thinking about not very much. What do what do I coming back to LV? Um, I feel a huge responsibility as a parent for her well-being and for her going on in the world to be a proactive, decent person. I don't want that to sound too sort of. I mean, decent with a very small D, you know, not a not a patriotic, jingoistic decent. I just mean c- connectable, open, funny person. And that's, yeah, that's... I worry about that more than most else thing, most other things. It's, I don't know, is that... That's probably quite common, I would suggest. I mean, I'd hope so. You would, wouldn't you? I mean, you're, you? Meant, you're meant to want that for your child, aren't you? Yeah, because right now... At, at one year old, she has no... Obviously, this is so true, but she has no way of doing anything herself. And she didn't sign up for it. She was our decision and our responsibility. And we're doing, like, we're doing I think, a relatively decent job for two actors, you know, in terms of giving her an awful lot of stimulation and, and, and love. But I look at colleagues of mine who were both in the entertainment industry or both actors now and who have older children or children a bit older than Elvie and I have a great deal of admiration for them anybody really who's a parent Jesus Christ it's hard it's wonderful but it's it's hard so there, there's certainly an eye-opening amount of of respect I think that as a new parent you suddenly about your own parents you know the sleepless nights and all of that, all of those cliches, they're, they're true, as cliches very often are. Um, does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a question by one of the listeners called uh, Andy Walker, who sometimes I, I allow them to ask questions if they donate to the podcast, like oh, an right evil on. dictator. Okay, benign, <laughs> benign. Sure, benign, benign dictator. Sure, yeah. sure. Oh no, or maybe not. Actually, you <laughs> yeah, do have a predilection for wanting to kill of, people. So yeah, there is a bit of there's a bit of evil. But anyways, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah if they don't donate, I do kill them. <laughs> okay, I, I, right. I forgot to mention that. Uh, no, so he his question was, and I think it kind of ties in with this, uh, like how do you deal with failure? And I guess that both goes for like in your work, and I guess personally as well, any mm. kind of failure or yeah, failure. Yeah. Um, this might be a good time to talk about the Pirate Queen. Uh, <laughs> so yes, please. please. <laughs> I really like Pirate It's on YouTube and nowhere else. You never saw it live, though, right? No, I didn't, no. no. But I've, I've had it. You may not have had the same feeling. <laughs> really? 
Yeah. I've, I've, in my head, I'm pretty sure I know exactly how it looks. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, The Pirate Queen was a musical written by the guys who wrote Les Mis and Miss Saigon, which I suppose would be, would you agree, the mus- two of the musicals that have become embedded in the cultural consciousness mm. more than any others? Yeah. You might ask someone on the street to name a musical. They might say one of those two, perhaps. Mm. So I suppose the omens were all good for this musical, The Pirate Queen, and we started it, it was in the States, we started it in Chicago, and then it went to Broadway in 2006-2007 season, and it sort of sunk without trace, really, um, if you'll pardon the terrible pun. Um, I think we did five months on Broadway, which, if you hadn't spent much money on the show, maybe it would have been okay, but... I would imagine they probably spent upwards of about $25 million on the show and I would imagine lost most of that. Um, And I think it's gone down in sort of internet musical theatre forums as one of the biggest flops of all time. Really? Yeah, it's often, you know, it's it's often (laughs) on that list. So to have been part of that, I suppose, is quite a good way of dealing with failure. Did you know as it was happening? Yeah, um, I did, unfortunately. And look, let me preface this by saying I have a, a huge amount of appreciation and love for the people who were involved in that show. The producers, John Moyer, um, John um, McColgan and Moyer Doherty, who were the brains behind Riverdance, are two of the best producers I've ever worked for, two of the most caring people. The composers, Claude Michel and Schoenberg and Alain Boubier, are beautiful people very caring people but there's sometimes in life I suppose you put a team of people together and something just didn't click whether it was the story whether it was the way that the story was dealt with I don't know what it was it was the story of I mean you'd think it had a great deal going for it it's a true story about an Irish um, woman who becomes the captain of a pirate ship and she's the only person I think in history ever to have defeated um, the English Navy in battle it's an extremely feminist piece as It's well. incredibly forward-thinking. And, yeah, very, very feminist. And I think that's why it was a particular attraction to a lot of people and why it gained an awful lot of excitement before it opened. And we had an incredible cast. Stephanie J. Block, mm. who played Grace, is a force of nature with a voice from the gods. Everything was in place for it to be a smash. And for whatever reason, it just bombed. Not bombed. It bombed. <laughs> and Did, how do you know that? Like, so was it like day one? I, no one was in, and you're like, oh, so when shit. we were rehearsing for the first sort of tryout thing in Chicago, I turned around to Marcus Chait, who's playing the baddie, and I said, "What if we're in one of the biggest turkeys of all time?" And he went, "No, man, no, 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 it's, it's fine, it's fine, don't worry about it." And then you know, you look on some of the musical theatre forums today, and it's up there with some of the big sort of some of the big howlers so that definitely crystallised I think in my mind or actually probably upset in my mind a great deal of the preconceptions that I had about where I was in the industry what I wanted to do so in the wake of that I didn't really have anything to come back to the UK for personally or, or professionally so I sort of in a rather cliched manner, headed out to LA and spent two years there not really working, <laughs> um, trying to become something that I probably wasn't. What? 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 
Um, just sort of trying to be a slightly sort of oh one of those sort of Californian worky out type people uh, California LA in particular is a very weird it's a great place and if you've got a good you know network of friends there and a good body of people it can be a brilliant place to live and work but I suppose I lacked a little bit of something there and uh, I just became something that I wasn't and I think I had a horrible sort of Damascene realisation two years down the line made a bit of a fist of fist of coming back over here just personally and then uh, a, b- a bit of a fist yeah I, d- I messed up a bit personally I won't go into too many details if okay. that's alright but that's okay. um, uh, because I think I was in the wrong place and trying to be the wrong person and when I came back to the UK it all sort of fell into place a little bit. I don't know, Sophie. Sometimes you've got to go there to come back, right? I mean... I don't mean specifically LA. I just mean... <laughs> although that's also true. Well, that's also true. But it's so cliché. That's the other thing, you know. Uh, and not that I reject that sort of cliché. Again, sometimes you've just got to be that person. And then as, as an actor, it's a very attractive place to go because there is wealth and there is success there. Um but I suppose it took me two years to sort of get over perhaps the failure of of Pirate Queen and to wow. go, oh, do you know what? Actually, it's okay. Um, it's okay to be back on stage. It's okay to surface again in the U- the United Kingdom and go, oh, I'm back. Um, so you weren't on stage for those two years no. after the Pirate Queen? No, I, I think I was kidding myself that I was trying to do a lot of screen work. You know, I did a kids tv show which i had a ball on but you know it wasn't necessarily um too sort of life altering and then i did a couple of sort of independent slightly um questionable films um but i didn't touch the stage for two years so uh is that because is that a surely you don't blame yourself is it just like how much does that no but I wonder whether there's a similarity with you saying oh I, I bought a ticket the next day to go back to Denmark I think the exact same thing yeah I think I probably just went I want to run away from this in fact to be honest with you I'd had two shows back to back back to back not quite back to back but in relatively quick succession I did a musical here in London called The Far Pavilions which again was a bit of a arrived with a lot of pomp and circumstance but it didn't go down very well at all and and closed quite early and I suppose the fact that I thought my star was on the rise slightly both in the West End and on Broadway and it came crashing down to earth in both instances I think in the long run was very good for me because it meant that I knew that my own shit didn't smell of roses and it um, probably uh, gave me a great deal of drive a couple of years later to come back and go, right, I'm going to fix this. And I haven't really looked back, if I'm honest with you. So failure, I think, I encountered around that time. And I don't know, it was a... I was 27, 28, 29 when I was in L.A. Peak years, I suppose. I don't want that to sound too sort of jockey, you know, like... Peak years, man. But I feel like I wasted time. And uh, I suppose that's how I've then felt that I've countered that failure. 
by it comes back to that thing of being busy and being busy with good people and going right if it's a thing with a great deal of pomp and circumstance fine if it's just a small project let's commit to it let's get good people on board even if it's a little concert or something or a gig i'm really keen to work with brilliant people and the amount of time i spent with my feet up in la pretending that i was an actor and then i had a word with myself and went actually just a bit of a sad individual get on with it was that like a classic Hollywood moment of you like washing your face in the morning and then looking into the mirror and being like, <laughs> oh no, I've become everything. Actually, weirdly, it wasn't. I um, I got a call from an old um, colleague, a, a director called Nikolai Foster, who runs the Leicester Curve now. And I'd worked a few times with him uh, in musicals over the years and enjoyed working with him. And he said, look, this is completely out of the blue, but do you want to come back and do... Um, a Christmas carol at Birmingham Rep over Christmas. Now, you know, I was in LA. I was like, why the, do I want to go to Birmingham? Anyway, my dad hadn't been very well, so I came back and I thought, oh, do you know what? I'll work. I'll, if I'm going to come back to the UK at some point, I'll come back over Christmas. That makes sense. My dad hadn't been well, so I came back and I just went. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the mirror moment. I wish there had have been like walking up New Street in Birmingham, <laughs> like a, like a pigeon shitting on my shoulder or something. I don't um, think anyone's had that moment in Birmingham. Yeah, I, I went to university in Birmingham. Actually, oh, yeah. I love it. It gets a bad rap, but I have a great deal of love. For Birmingham. I always had fun shows in Birmingham. Yeah, but it just doesn't strike me as the place where you make great make realizations. Your, no, perhaps not. Like the road to Selly Oak is not quite the Damascene moment, is it? Um, <laughs> So that was it, coming back just for a sort of slightly random and unexpected show. But it it, it altered my my life in a brilliant way. I'm just going to check if there's anything I've forgotten to no, no. ask you. There is one that's a really... Yeah. Do you get... This is just a little silly one. Do you get... Because when you do stand-up and you tell people that that's what you do for a living, yeah. cab drivers will always say, oh, go on, tell me a joke. Yeah. Do you get the same thing as musical yeah. actors? Very frequently, I mean, because I, I'd usually say I'm an actor first and foremost, so mm-hmm. people say, all right, what have you been in? Have I heard of anything? And so in recent years, I'm quite glad that I've done a couple of things that I'm, I can guarantee, like if I say Holby City, someone will go, oh yeah, I know Holby City, or um, that's about it, actually. <laughs> no, there's a couple of films that I've done. You don't open I, with Pirate Queen. I don't open with Pirate Queen, funnily enough, or uh, Christmas Carol at Birmingham Rep. Um, <laughs> uh it's weirdly, I think, if you're a singer or something like that, it's your family who never get back quite the hang of that. Like, will you sing? No! I would not, like, absolutely not. I'd love to say that I come from one of those sort of Celtic families who get up and sing at Christmas and everybody's just really cool and someone plays the fiddle and, <laughs> you know, and there's no sort of um, embarrassment about it and it's all very... Um, I don't know, like it's out of a film, but it's not. In my, I just, I'm just sort of racked by embarrassment whenever someone asks me to sing. Like that's not in that that sort of work mode. I just, I can't. It, it, and to a certain extent, I've found myself, even with my little girl now, sort of not singing well on purpose because I feel like. And it's not because she's not a paying audience. Although at some <laughs> point she's going to have to start, you know, paying. It's that 
I have a sort of mistrust, I suppose, of showing off now. Um, and I think if you'd met me when I was 18, I think the reverse would have been true. And now I'm really very circumspect about it. And so anything that 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 would even suggest a modicum of show-offiness... I, I'm really allergic to. I don't know. Do you feel the same? Do you, have like, you ever... Oh, I guess that deletes my next question. <laughs> no, <laughs> no have, uh, would yeah, you I ever... would never. never. No. Oh, but also, because jokes don't work like that. No. You can't be like, tell me a joke. So, okay, so here the other day, I was in Tesco. No, that's, that's, that's not how that it works. Unless maybe you're Tim is... Vine and you've oh, got... He, oh, yeah. But that, in a sense, that's its own thing, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's a joke joke, isn't it? Yeah. It's not really... I just, I just have this amazing... I just want to see you in, like, a cab just going, oh, here you go, so here's track number one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I brought the CD with the soundtrack, here you go. Here you go. It didn't do very well on Broadway, but... Um, <laughs> You're going to have to do the duet. duet. We're going to have to do the duet together. Yeah, this is going to blow your mind. If you learn the lower harmony, I'll still sing the high one because it's more difficult. That's fine. Um, yeah, no, I... Yeah... In fact, actually, um, quite often, if it's a cab driver or someone like that, I'll just say I'm a teacher. Mm, yeah. I don't know if you ever... Yeah, a writer. But even if yeah. you say you're a writer, then they'll go, oh, yeah, what do you write? And then you're into a whole world of going, well, okay, what sounds yeah, boring enough that they're not going to ask me any more questions? <laughs> do you say that you write sort of copy for restaurants or... Yeah, even then they might say all right which restaurants which my mum calls wagamania by the way oh, yeah nice. yeah I, I just think that, that makes sense <laughs> oh, rob i went to that wagamania the other day did you by the way sorry rob that's my real name that's why um uh, yeah anyway so um yeah no i i just i'd say i'm a teacher which i have done you know here and there so it's not always not a total lie um, I don't feel like I'm being terribly, terribly deceitful. What do you say? Do you say writer? I say, I, well, I, also, I always say stand-up comedian because I'm never prepared and I always regret it immediately. Really? And it's always a bad idea. I tried recently. Now I'm, I've had a few where I've been so far away and I've just thought, oh, maybe this is time for me to live my dream <laughs> life and just be like, well, actually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to see my my wife and she's uh, and then I start describing this this woman I'm crazy about and I have this whole and I just go into my own world and just go oh and then we met we, actually I'll tell you the story of how we met and just have this whole dream life set out and then have you, have, you, have you ever done that like have you ever said that to the cabbie yeah, yeah and how did it go down <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 it's just a nice little I mean they don't care True. but usually I'm the one listening to them like I very rarely get to talk it's usually them going, oh, you're a stand-up comedian. Well, I have a story about once I, really? had, I almost became a stand-up comedian. And then they have this whole... I, they often tell me facts about comedy. They're like... One, he was like, um, oh, stand-up. You have to really have some uh, some proper balls to just go up there and just make stuff up. And I was like, well, actually, we prepare. Like, we, yeah. we write it ahead of time. It's and he's like, improvised. nah. Nah, no, I'm brilliant, brilliant. I'm like, no, I've been doing this... For, almost eight years now like I know that like, I, I don't know and I know what I I'm know doing. this <laughs> yeah he's like nah Matt you just go up there you just start talking and you're like how oh, do you wow. feel about people who, who feel like they have a monopoly on knowledge like that mm, it's so frustrating it's I, so frustrating it's one of the most remarkably sort of myopic things in mm. life those people who tell you what you already mm. know 
it's 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 incredible but i think there's sort of a weird entitlement to it which always baffles me and i think about this every single time i'm in the theater which is so it's on my mind because i was i saw young frankenstein yesterday and fortunately where i sat it was good like no one was being annoying around me but that's right. such a rarity i so often sit what counts as annoying someone talking like someone talking yeah. like making a lot of it's just talking basically yeah so I, that happens so rarely, and when it does, I cannot, I cannot imagine being the kind of person who would sit, literally amongst so many people, knowing what they've paid, knowing they may, they've had to get babysitters, you know, to go out for this one night a month maybe, hmm. and then thinking you can talk. I, I, don't, I mean, it's, this makes me sound like such a <laughs> mean person, but I, I just don't. I think it's because I don't understand it. So I, can, I also, so I just can't empathize with someone being like this person i had a cab driver who for an hour told me about uh like when he went to hospital it was like an hour he was just talking about what he ate at the hospital when his daughter came to visit and i was just like i just don't understand the way of like there's no two-way here there's no there's no sharing of information here it's just a sort of stream not even a downloading of information it's like a wall yeah uh, of of yeah. Yeah, this is like this is my time to shine kind of thing and you're like yeah. but you're sitting But there's no understanding from their point of view that whether you're taking it in or enjoying it or or, or participating in in an exchange I'm really of ideas. I'm trying to show it though. I mean, when I say, "Oh, that's interesting." There's like a spider in my voice. Really? <laughs> oh, See, tell that, me more, but they can That's good. See, I'm terrible. I have, I just I'll facilitate. I'm an enabler of that sort of thing. It's <laughs> awful. I'll just go. All oh, right, okay. And did you feel like the catering was substandard in the <laughs> hospital? And then that's you know that's an hour of, like, of my life gone. It's uh, it's awful. You, s- you just seem like a nice guy. I know, but sometimes it's, that's a fault, isn't it? Some, like life is too short to talk about hospital catering if you don't need to if it's one way like if it's a two-way talk about hospital catering and what perhaps you could do to better that great i've got ideas yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i don't think it, i don't think it should ever be a one-way situation well maybe you should start singing while in cabs <laughs> but they'll start singing at me that's the that's the <laughs> and telling me I how to sing that. That's the, that, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, mate, would. actually, you're just a bit under on the G-sharp <laughs> there. you just got to just retract the throat and just smile. Um, there must be singing cab drivers. In fact, there are famous oh, ones, are. aren't there, I think, it's who have, like, karaoke cab- things in the back of their... Oh, God. Yeah, and they'll sing you, you know, like, I don't know, New York, New York on your way around Bermondsey. I mean, isn't it nice knowing that there's a, an alternative if your career fails? <laughs> yeah, actually, maybe I should start doing the knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> So this, uh, the last question I always ask people on this is, okay, so you're in the delivery room and you're holding yourself as a baby, right? So little, what's it, Robert, little Robert has just been born yeah. and he's crying because it's it's awful. Like it's, There's lights and sounds everywhere and you've not had that before, so it's all very scary and new. But you can say something to little crying you, um, that might make him feel better. Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't have to. That doesn't have to be the, what you want to tell him. But you can say something because you know what's going to happen in the next, however many years you are now, and you can't change the future at all. Mm-hmm. But you can maybe say something that would make it less because you know it's going to be terrifying. Yeah, there's going to be lights and sound. For sure. Yeah. But it's not going to be lights and sound. It'll be something else that's scary. So what would you tell teeny tiny baby you? I think I'd say the Pirate Queen's not the end. <laughs> um, 
and then probably follow it up with something slightly more mawkish. What would I say? I think I'd probably say it's all right. Yeah, I think I'd leave it at that. Because I think little baby Robert would get it. It's all right. Is that something you still need to be told? Yeah, from time to time, probably. Quite good at telling it myself now. Uh, but I think we all need to be told it, don't we? Otherwise, I don't think you... Probably are a feeling human. I think everyone needs to be told. Jesus, if somebody told Donald Trump that it was all right, <laughs> we wouldn't point. be in this mess. Yeah. You know? It's all right. You don't need to try so hard. It's going to be all right. That's perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. Thank um, you, Sophie. I feel like we've plucked Young Frankenstein a lot, but if you want to give the details one more time. We have. But, oh, uh, maybe you have, a lot of, you have a lot of other stuff. You no, I don't think I do. Do to. I? No. Young Frankenstein. That's it. Come and see us at the Garrick Theatre in London's glittering West End. We're on, I think, we're booking till September. I'm sure it's youngfrankensteinlondon.co.uk, but you'll find it. You're all more technically savvy than I am. Thank it's you for having me, it's Sophie. It's really funny as well, the show. It's yeah, really good. Yeah, it's fun. It does what it says on the tin. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Could you hear... I I wonder if you could hear it in my voice that I was just a bit blown away. Um, oh, isn't he sweet? I hope I hope this made sense to, <laughs> to you as well. I, I was probably in some kind of haze when I did this chat with him. Um, anyways... Uh, you again I know I've said it before but I'm so grateful for everything you do uh, when you go on iTunes and you rate the podcast give it a fi I don't even think it really matters what you give it but if you give it like a five star rating or you just make a comment or something it really helps the podcast grow and the more it grows uh, the bigger guests we can get the more uh, the more I get to interview people who might be a bit difficult to get to etc etc and what I'm saying is it means something and what I love about this podcast is that It's just us. It's me and it's you. And we get to decide what this is. And that is because you like dealing with producers and script writers and uh, just well, not most script writers, but producers and, and CEOs and people with money and people who, who get to give you money to do something. They're going to make it their own. And it's not good. So this is me doing this for you, for me. So it helps and it matters that you help out it means so much so thank you thank you thank you for helping out these are the people who give via patreon.com forward slash mopod m-o-h-p-o-d who give more than five dollars per episode so they are friends of the podcast so let's give a shout out to these absolute heroes and people whose names i never forget i will meet you after a gig and you'll say oh hello my name is uh, uh kathy Draxelbauer, and i'll be like kathy Draxelbauer, i remember you i've said your name a lot so That's another kind of weird perk. So, uh, huge thank you to these uh, friends of the podcast. Please uh, join me in thanking Kathy Thraxelbauer, Robert Knowles, Eve Wingworth, Marnie Biles, Phil Vapolis, Rachel Fairley, 
Zoe Cumberland, George Pearson, uh, Marbles Lost, Josie, Cecil Fjeltun, Rachel Hemsley, Helena Thomas, SoSuperAwesome.com. Clever, clever marketing ploy there. Uh, Mari Fraser, Lucy, Eileen Olofsson, Aria Jane, Susie Tyler, Rosie Evans, Rachel Craftman, Kirsten Davidson, Patty Patterson, Steph Ream, Ruth Harvey, Jane Young, Bethany Dahlstrom, Katie Hatfield, Robin Kappa, James Frew, Karen Threthway, uh, Russell Hughes, Ida Sigur Larsninger, Ellingson, Caleb Melchior, uh, Dr. Boda Cycle Returns, that's so funny, Jessica Stuhlfire, Emma Chan, Kathy Beveridge, Emma Walton, Andy Walker, Geraldo Nascimento, Claire, Danny Beckett, Fiona Richardson, Claire Lamb, Grace Suter, Kat Piller, Harold Van Dyke, Eleanor, Sarah Ferreira, Eikeseth, and Daniel Wright for Shade, Shade. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry to every single one of you. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Whoopsie. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Sarah Gavi for producing this episode, to Bailey Leonard for writing and recording the jingle, to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo, and to the Phoenix Artist Club and Peter Dunbar for letting me record episodes there. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Mm-hmm.